The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Privilege to go to God's holy word today to study scripture together. Usually we're going maybe through a book of the Bible. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, looking at the person of the glorious Jesus Christ and his ministry, taking a little bit of a break from that. We'll get back to that real soon here coming up. Some of you may be asking, Pastor Cliff, what are you wearing? You know, you don't have your, your jacket and your tie. No, I don't. So if you can't see, I put the print here. It's, I can't even tell you what it says because it's in Spanish. And I just, Pastor Bob and I and uh, Robin Douglas, we spent two weeks in Honduras in some seminars there and training pastors and wives and other saints. Had a glorious time. Even this morning, one of you, one of our members said, I prayed for you. No, a couple of people said that this morning, and that was a few weeks ago. So thank you again. We want to thank you for your prayers for the ministry at Honduras, where we were able to spend two different weeks and two different uh, conferences to be used by God to share the truth of his word, to help edify the saints there in Central America. And God blessed and met all of our needs. So thank you. You can In your prayer journal, you can write, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for answering that prayer and the fruit and seed that remains there producing more and more fruit. So thank God. So today we were reviewing uh, the ministry in Honduras because you invested in that in so many ways. Our church has. It's a collective and corporate investment in ministry. It's not just those who go. It's all of us together. It's the church of God. So we wanted to give you some highlights and fruit. So today at the fellowship meal, we'll have a little slideshow over some yummy food on just highlights of the ministry there for two weeks, what's going on in Honduras I think you'll be blessed by that, and then my responsibility now is to summarize in an hour, one hour, uh, basically what I taught over two weeks. Can I do it? I don't know if I can do that. We're going to try. So I'm going to take a lot of the high points and distill those down into one sermon today that I call simply, if you look at your hand up there, it's the title of today's sermon is Biblical Counseling, Selected Scriptures. So we'll be looking at many different Bible passages, biblical counseling. I know it's kind of open-ended and somewhat generic. That's okay. The Bible has to say a lot about biblical counseling. Uh, And we'll just walk through the Word of God together. I don't know how much we'll actually cover, but again, there are some key points that I want to share with you, bring to your attention, maybe for the first time, or just by way of reminder to be meditating on these very important principles regarding biblical counseling. So... That's what we're doing today. Um, It's very practical. It's very important. I say biblical counseling. I don't know what conjures up in your mind when I say that, biblical counseling. With all these different people we have, it's all over the map of what you might think biblical counseling is. So one of the simple goals today is just simply to define biblical counseling according to the Bible. There's a lot of confusion about what Biblical counseling is, let alone counseling, but the Bible has something to say about it, and I think very specifically, so I'm going to argue my case from Scripture today on basically what is biblical counseling. So we'll get right to that, and we'll we'll be looking at a couple of key Scriptures and then referencing many others. You might want to be ready to just take some notes. This is kind of unique for me. I was thinking, okay, in 30-plus years of preaching, I have never preached a sermon on biblical counseling or what is biblical counseling. I've taught on the topic. I've taught classes on it, weeks on end, for hours and hours, over the course of a quarter, semester, whatever, over the years, for decades. But actually, I've never preached on a sermon on what is biblical counseling. So for me, that was a fresh challenge and yet exciting. And how can I distill this all down in a very helpful way so we can wrap our brains and arms around it and make it practical. So that's our goal today. What is biblical counseling? So let's just go ahead and start there. What is biblical counseling? Let's just start with the word counseling. Define that. And you're going to get all kinds of definitions from different people. You'll get very different definitions if you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian versus a Christian on what is counseling. And then if you have three different Christians lined up and you say, what is counseling? You're going to probably get three different answers. And if you're not aware, out in the evangelical Christian world, the topic of counseling 
is very controversial and has been for decades. For whatever reason. I think I know many of the reasons. But So we want to clear the air on some of that fog today, hopefully, for all of us to think more clearly on what is counseling. I'd just say counseling is helping people with their problems. It's really that simple. That's what counseling is. That's nothing profound. Most people would agree with that, whether you're a Christian or not. Counseling is just helping people with their problems. Usually problems they can't solve themselves. And who wants to help people solve their problems? Well, everybody, right? Do Mormons want to help people with their problems? Absolutely. Do agnostics want to help other people with their problems? Yeah, absolutely. Do atheists want to help other people with their problems? Yeah. Absolutely. Do Muslims want to help other people with their problems? Yep, plenty of them do. So it doesn't matter what your worldview is when it comes to wanting to help people with their problems. Just about everybody would say, yeah, I'd like to counsel, we need counsel, we offer counsel. Then it just comes down to how do they define it. So we added the definition of, well, what is counseling? Well, it's trying to help people with their problems, usually problems they can't solve themselves. But I want to get more definitive, and I want to talk about biblical counseling today. So we're going to be talking about something very specific, something that flows out of Scripture, that's something that flows out of a Christian worldview. If you're not born again, a Bible-believing Christian, committed to the Word of God and Scripture and familiar with it, then what we're talking about today, biblical counseling, might be, come across as somewhat foreign to you because it doesn't sync or resonate with your worldview, your background, your training, your understanding, your experience, your convictions, your presuppositions. That's all right. We're just going to go with what the Bible says on biblical counseling and define it. Let me give you my simple McManus version definition of biblical counseling. I made this up. Informed by Scripture, I hope. With a little help from my friends. With a little help from my friends. Here's the definition. Then we're going to unpack this. Biblical counseling is speaking... That's verbalizing. Very important. Did you know not all counseling is about speaking out there in the world? Biblical counseling is. So, biblical counseling. Speaking biblical truth. The B-I-B-L-E. And only the B-I-B-L-E. Speaking biblical truth to the mind. Directly to the mind of another person. When I'm sitting down and counseling with somebody, I am speaking to their mind. We're going to see that from Scripture. So speaking biblical truth to the mind on a personal level. On a personal level, that's very important. It could be one-on-one. It could be a group of three, a group of seven, a group of 12. But it's very personal. It's intimate. It's interactive. It's back and forth. It's not like preaching one way. Preaching to 50, preaching to 500, preaching to 5,000. That technically isn't the kind of counseling we're talking about, but biblical counseling. Speaking biblical truth to the mind of the person you're talking to on a very personal level with a purpose, and that is to encourage change. So that's the whole thing. Speaking biblical truth to the mind on a personal level to encourage change. And the word encourage flows right out of Scripture. We're going to talk about what that is. New fate. Teo is the... Greek word, very specific. It's a proactive word. To encourage change. What do I mean by change? I mean obedience. What do I mean by that? Obedience to what? Submission to Scripture. Obedience to Scripture. Which means obedience to God. Obedience to Scripture means obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience to the Bible means obedience to the Holy Spirit. Obedience to The Bible means obedience to and submission to the triune God of the universe. So every word, critically important. And this is a distinct definition of what biblical counseling is. Biblical counseling, speaking biblical truth to the mind on a personal level to encourage change, meaning obedience to God, as revealed in his word, the Bible. So what's a biblical counselor? Oh, we'll see. I'll talk about that in Romans 12. A biblical counselor then does this, is hopefully used by God to do this, is a conduit of this truth, talking to, ministering to somebody who needs biblical counseling. We all need biblical counseling, by the way, don't we, as believers? Um, 
But as a counselor, I don't have all the answers. To be honest with you, I don't have any answers as a biblical counselor, as a pastor, as a Christian. I just go and try to figure out what God's already said and then communicate that to somebody's particular situation. So if you're coming to me for new information and pioneering thinking, you're going to be gravely disappointed. I have not one original thought in my body or head. I just want to reflect what God's already said. That's biblical counsel. Maybe, but applying it to new and unique and personal situations. So that's biblical counseling. That's the tax. And when you're giving a definition of something, especially something that is technical, very specific, you can't deviate from it. The Bible is so important about words and how we use words. We need to be specific with using biblical words. Uh, we need to not drift away from the meaning of the words that God has given and attach different nuances to biblical words. This happens all the time. And that happens in counseling all the time. We're using word. It happens in theology all the time. No, we're going, to, we're going to get back to what God said in His Word. We're going to stick with His definitions, the way He gave them, the, the words that He gave, the meaning that He intended, and we're not going to deviate or change and attach new nuances to words that God has given because He spoke exactly what He wanted to say, every word that comes out of His mouth, and we can't tinker with it. That's dangerous. That's why this definition I gave is very explicitly specific, flowing from the words of Scripture. And I want to show that. So that's our biblical definition. But when you're defining something of this importance and this technical, it's always good to define it positively, but also by way of contrast. Here is what biblical counseling is, I just told you. Now let me tell you what biblical counseling is not. Are you ready? I've got a long list. I'm just going to whip through it. I'm not going to slow down if you're trying to write it down, but here it is. Here's what biblical counseling is not. Here's what I don't mean. Biblical counseling is not secular psychology. I could almost say biblical counseling is not psychology. That's not quite accurate because the word psychology is a biblical word. Suke, it's a basic word from the Bible in the New Testament. Suke. Freud didn't make that word up. God did. Suke, the soul, the inner being, all that constitutes you on the the inside is a person, everything about you that makes you a person from your intellect, your will, your volition, your emotions, your soul, your spirit, your conscience. That's what I mean by the inner man. All of that is all wrapped up in that word suke, the inner man, the inner woman. Made in the image of God. Suke. So does the Bible talk about psychology? Yes, there is a biblical psychology or a biblical anthropology, we would call it. But when we use the word today, that isn't what people mean. When you say psychology and you go to San Jose State and you major in psychology, you're not getting biblical anthropology. You're not getting suke from the New Testament. So that's why I can confidently say that when I'm talking about biblical counseling, I am not talking about secular psychology or even psychology as we know. Little footnote, if I were to ask you, if you've grown up in the church or been around for a while, who are the two most influential mainstream Christian counselors in the last 50 years on a popular level by virtue of their exposure, the books that they sold, the influence they have, where they're represented in churches around the world, on Christian radio. Well, in the top five, it's got to be, I'd say the top two definitely would be James Dobson, who's still alive, and Larry Crabb, if you're familiar with him. Larry Crabb went to be in it, to heaven about a year ago at age 76. I had a class from Larry Crabb back in the 80s, and it was on uh, Christian counseling, which was really psychology. So th those are two of the most influential evangelical. They're, they're believers. Uh, like I said, Larry Crabb is in heaven. James Dobson is a believer, loves Jesus, knows the gospel. But the two most influential Christian counselors in the last 50 years on a popular level. The interesting thing is, uh, all of their training, technically, they are um, psychologists. That's their training. It's like they're not theologians. They're not trained in theology. Not trained as Bible teachers. Not pastors. So I think that's significant. And the reason I bring them up is because they have been so influential over the years. Um, you can hear it from their own mouth if you find the right resource. Uh, Larry Crabb and James Dobson have both said after 30 to 40 years of doing their thing, leading the charge in Christian psychology and the Christian world and Christian counseling, 
Both of them, interestingly, towards the end of their life and the end of, end of their ministry, they decided, you know what, I've been doing it wrong all along. Literally. Larry Crabb, <laughs> it's on YouTube, and you can just go through all his... He's got, yeah, you know what, I, I, you know, one day it just dawned on me that I have been doing this wrong for the last 30 years. So I need to start all over. Here he is, like, in his late 60s. So i, I got to write a new book and do it all over again. I'm like, wow, what do I do with my notes from college in the 1980s when I went to his class? But James Dobson basically said the same thing not long ago, that, you know what... Uh, his emphasis was not so much that he was doing it wrong, but he had the wrong goal, and his goal wasn't being achieved. And there's something wrong. I've missed it. Literally, I've missed it. My priorities. I'm not picking on them because this is their public testimony. It actually didn't surprise me because their philosophy and methodology, it's not from the Bible. They don't claim that it is, really. It's from psychology. They were trained by secular psychologists. The majority of their teachers were secular psychologists, meaning they don't have a commitment to the Bible, to Jesus Christ, to the Trinity, to biblical truth, to a Christian worldview. They're getting all their stuff and their presuppositions and their worldview from the secular world, from unbelievers, from agnostics, from atheists, from Freudian people who, not just unbelievers, hated God, hated the Bible, mocked Scripture, made fun of Christians. This is who they were. You can read their words. Hated religion. Despised religious leaders. That's who they learned from. That's the foundation. So, uh, when I talk about biblical counseling, I am not talking about psychology. I'm not even talking about secular psychology. And I'm not talking about Christian psychology. When I'm talking about biblical counseling, I'm not talking about therapy either. Therapy. Again, this is where we need to stick with biblical terminology. Uh, I am not a therapist. Do you even know what therapy means? That's the New Testament word therapeuo. It's not an uncommon word. Therapeuo. It means heal. To heal. You know who heals? One person. God. God is the healer. Scripture is clear. Jesus is the healer. The Holy Spirit is the healer. God the Father is the healer. He heals. He does therapeuo. So I don't go to a person as my healer, my therapeuo, my therapist. I don't go to a therapist, and I don't, I'm not a therapist, and I don't even try to do therapy with people. So they tell me, I can't do that. You want me to heal you? I can't heal you. I know somebody who can heal you. God the Father, the triune God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, he'll do it with his word and his spirit relative to your particular problem. But I'm not your therapist, so when a Christian says they're seeing a therapist, I got a lot of questions. You mean you're seeing a healer? They're going to heal you? You are setting yourself up for disappointment big time. So when I'm talking about biblical counseling, I'm not talking about secular psychology or psychology. I'm not talking about therapy. I'm not talking about psychiatry. There are a lot of Christian psychiatrists out there who call themselves Christian counselors. And their training is first and foremost in psychiatry and psychology. And if you look at the list, a lot of times there's zero Bible training whatsoever. Psychiatry has evolved over the years. Uh, some try to pin it on Freud from 100 years ago. He was a psychiatrist, or at least advanced and developed it, but had been around a little bit longer than that. But it has become primarily uh, a medical profession. So primarily what a, a psychiatrist does today, I don't know if you know this, when you sit down with a psychiatrist, you're not sitting down with a counsel for an hour, and then just, how you doing? That's not what a psychiatrist does. Psychiatrist is a medical doctor, and they just give you drugs. They give you drugs, and they monitor it. See you next month. How's your dosage doing? How are your pills? How are you feeling? Maybe we need to give you more. Come back next month. 99.99 plus tax. See you then. That's what they do. I know this. I've, I've been in the ministry and counseling and exposed to this for over 30 years. By the way, footnote, talked about Larry Crabb and uh, James Dobson, fellow believers, who regretted what they did after 30 years. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I got trained in biblical counseling about 36 years ago. 36 years ago. First at Christian college, then at seminary, it was all reaffirmed, then been in the ministry for over 30 years. And not only have I not changed my view, I still believe what I was taught at my Christian college and my Christian seminary. Not only that, I believe it more strongly today than I ever have. 
because I see the important implications of it. So I'm hunkering down. And I think I can see a little more clearly what the priorities are. And with that, I just, you need to be aware. That's my experience. That's where I'm coming from. I do teach biblical counseling at seminary, usually to pastors primarily. And I just cut it straight. Here's what the Word of God says, guys, and we interact on it. So that's going to be my approach today. Here's what I think the Bible says. Here's the truth. We're just cutting it straight. I'm not dancing around on this. Some of you, no doubt, are going to be surprised about what I say today. Some of you probably have already been surprised of the things I've already said in 10 minutes. But that's okay. If you're a Christian and you've grown up in the church, you say you love the Bible, you read the Bible, you study the Bible, you believe on Jesus, depend on Jesus, he's your all in all, and then you're surprised by what I say, then I'm surprised by the fact that you're surprised by what I say. <laughs> but that's okay. We, we want to learn together. So biblical counseling is not psychology, it's not therapy, it's not psychiatry, it's not, there's another important uh, or very popular form of counseling, it's, it's called mirroring, a, you know, a mirror, you look in a mirror and it looks back at you, mirroring, that's also known as ref reflecting back, you go into the counselor and you say something, they just say the same thing back to you, oh, okay, yeah, tell me more, oh, yeah, and they just reaffirm everything, reaffirm, that's the goal, just reaffirm everything, affirm everything, don't challenge what the counselee says, don't try to correct their thinking, it's called mirroring and reflecting back. That is not biblical counseling. As a matter of fact, the definition I just read to you, and we're going to see in Romans 15, 14, the Bible does the exact opposite by way of counsel. It's not reflecting back and mirroring and just telling you what you want to hear. This is sometimes called passive listening. We need to be excellent listeners as Christians, but that's not passive listening. We, we are into proactive listening. So it's not mirroring, biblical counseling is not worldly wisdom slash common sense slash pragmatism. That's all one category. I'm not talking about worldly wisdom, common sense, pragmatism, 12 steps. By the way, I had a personality for each one of these. It's not psychology, that's Dr. Phil. It's not therapy, that's Dr. Freud. It's not psychiatry, that's Dr. Bob Newhart. It's not passive listening, that's Dr. Leo Marvin. It's not worldly wisdom, common sense, pragmatism, 12 steps. That's Dr. Laura. Next category, biblical counseling is not voodoo slash quackery slash rapid eye therapy slash any other gimmick. That's Granny Clampett. <laughs> biblical counseling is not yoga. Not yoga. What's yoga? Yoga, let me give you a little Sanskrit Hebrew le uh, Hindu lesson. It's real simple. How do I know this? I had a, a master Swami tell me this, who grew up, born and raised in India, was a Hindu, and became the highest echelon of Hinduism in their religion. And he was a Swami, and he became a Christian. And he said, it's real simple. Yoga means to yoke. And you do all these gyrations. They're deliberate with your body and all that stuff. And then you say a mantra. That's a Hindu Sanskrit word. A mantra. That's the name of an Indian god. Om. O-M. That's the most popular one. Om. 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 And you keep repeating it over and over again. This is Hinduism. This is basic Hinduism and meditation. What are you doing? You're, you're meditating over and over again on the name of a Hindu god to wake up that Hindu god, to excite that Hindu god, and then you contort your body so that that whatever it is, will go down your spine literally to the base of your spine where the kundalini spirit resides in all of us to create some kind of sensation and spiritual action to earn, work your way to one essence with the all-pantheistic being of the universe. This is true yoga. This is uh, meditation. I've been taught this. Used to do it. Meditate on my mantra. Christians have bought into this. I have family members who do it in the American version. It's called Transcendental Meditation. You get your secret mantra. It's counterfeit religion. Jesus said, when you get to heaven, I'll give you a secret name that no one knows but me and you. And the false Hindu God says, oh, I'll give you your secret name that you, nobody else knows but you and that God. Your mantra. It's supposed to make you feel better. It's supposed to solve your problems. It's supposed to relieve your stress. 
I've been told this for decades now by people I know. Who's the doctor for this approach to a better life? This is George Harrison of the Beatles. Then there's visualization. That's very common. Oh, just close your eyes and visualize a better life and visualize that. And imagine, if you will, imagine there is no heaven. Imagine there is no heaven. That's John Lennon. When I say biblical counseling, I'm not talking about the occult and all of its forms. The occult. Palm reading. The Ouija board. You can buy that at Toys R Us, by the way. The Ouija board. You buy it in a box. Toys R Us. Satan will talk to you and give you the answers. How do I know? I used to do the Ouija board in high school. I was totally immersed in the occult. Seances. We had seances all the time growing up. This was to lead us to a better life, to supernatural wisdom. This is the occult. This is condemned by the Bible in the book of Deuteronomy. Who's the great practitioner of this? This is Gandalf. Dr. Gandalf. Then there's horoscopes. People living their life by the stars. It's been around forever. What sign are you? Oh, I'm a Virgo. Well, I'm a Leo. We get along. And on and on it goes. Fortune cookie wisdom. Horoscope. What's your sign? It's false religion. Who is the grand poopah of that? I'd put Cher. (laughs) Cher, the hippie. She started that in the 70s. Uh, Acupuncture. Acupuncture, it's where they stick pins in your body. If you ever studied acupuncture, I had to explain this to me by a, a practitioner of acupuncture who was a scientist. And he said, the, and he's a Christian. He's explaining this to me. He gives me two manuals on it. And it's, the basis of it is it's an Eastern wisdom, an Eastern mystic, and that there are invisible meridians that run constantly through your body, Cliff. Did you know that? They run east and west, north and south, and when they uh, head into each other, we've got to fix those meridians and redirect the, meri- the invisible spirit meridians in your body. This guy's a Christian. I'm like, what? That's false religion. But they, it promises a lot. Yeah, we'll solve your problems. It'll relieve your stress. It'll eliminate your back pain, and on and on it goes. But Gilligan's Island, that's what I put for that one. It's uh, Biblical counseling is not superstition, mysticism, ritualism, false religion, necromancy, praying to the dead, honoring the dead, lighting candles, lighting incense, all in the name of religion, trying to make your life better. That's the Catholic Church and every other false religion. Another popular form of counseling, Christian ca- or counseling, trying to help people that's uh, leaked into the church is just simply the self-esteem movement. What's that? That's love yourself. Just love yourself. You go and see the counselor, they just tell you how you love yourself. You don't love yourself enough. Love yourself. Jesus said, deny yourself. You know what that means? Hate yourself. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Hate yourself and be willing to die for God. That is the fundamental basic requirement to come to Jesus. There are no two greater extremes or polar opposites. Love yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It's not hard, people. Pretty basic. Well, who's the guru of this? Well, that was Whitney Houston. (laughs) Then there's another counseling movement. It's called the do good movement. Just do good and you feel better about yourself. Do good, do good. Do good, be good. Just do good and you'll be better. So there's a lot of do-gooders out there. In the world, they got some of the best do-gooders around. They're hard to keep up with, by the way. Churches, we we can't amass the resources they have to do all the the do-gooding. They're hard to match, but it's part of their world philosophy and some of their presuppositions. Do good, be good. That's Oprah. (laughs) And then finally, very popular one that's on the rise today, taking the country by storm, if not the world, and that's just smoke pot. (laughs) Smoke pot or drink alcohol or do some form of drugs because it's all the same. What's the point? Why smoke pot? I know people who are in their 60s have been smoking pot since they were 13, literally every day. Several people. They don't know God. Why are they doing it? Because they're trying to numb themselves. They don't want to live in reality because this hard, this world is hard. This life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is painful, full of sorrows. Full. Yeah, I, I don't blame them. The older I get, I'm thinking, man, I can't imagine living 50, 60, 70, 80 years without Christ in his life? How do these people survive? How do they do it? 
I don't get it. Oh, I oh I get it. Counterfeits. False religion. Distractions from immorality, entertainment, extreme measures, numbing your senses so you don't have to face the real world and problems. Marijuana, stay high, cocaine, drugs, alcohol. And then when that doesn't work, what do you do? You commit suicide. So it makes sense. The Bible tells us, if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, Ephesians 2, it's, it's point blank. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you are without God and without hope in this world. Somebody comes to me for counseling, which happens all the time. I just got an email two days ago from somebody, I don't even know where they live, asking for counsel. I know nothing about them. First question is, are they a Christian? Do they know Jesus Christ personally? If they don't know Jesus Christ personally, I don't, I don't know what their problem is, but I can't really help them that much. I can give them a Band-Aid. But the greatest thing I can give them is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they would know the wonderful counselor personally. He's not going to eliminate all your problems when you become a Christian. So that's biblical counseling, what it is and what it isn't. Let me just give you two verses that I want to camp out on here in our remaining time. I can give you a lot, but two primary verses that I'm pulling from, two passages. You go to Romans. We'll look at one in Romans 12 and then one in uh, Romans 15, 14. And we're just scratching the surface on what is biblical counseling and what it isn't. And these are a beautiful complement to one another. These, the Apostle Paul through the Spirit of God in Romans 12 helps us define biblical counseling. Let's look at Romans 12, 1, and we'll stop at verse 8. Paul says, okay, I just wrote 11 chapters to you of biblical truth. I told you about the gospel, and I'm assuming at this point you understand it, you believe it, you're a Christian. Therefore, in other words, if you're not a Christian, I'm not talking to you in chapter 12, verse 1. So biblical counseling, primarily the audience is, I am talking to believers, people who know Jesus Christ and believe in the authority of his word. And that's Paul's understanding here. He's talking to the saints in Rome, your believers. We have a common ground, a common understanding, a common identity, a common relationship with God Almighty, common ground in the truth. Therefore, when I lay down commands here, it's something that you can actually do. If you're not a Christian, you can't do it. You need to repent and be saved. But for you Christians, uh, therefore, I urge you, brethren, that just means fellow believers, men and women alike, males and females. Therefore, I urge you, and it's more than urge, I exhort you as an apostle. We're obligated to heed this truth. By the mercies of God, in light of the 11 chapters of God's great mercies that's been given to you through Jesus Christ, you're a possessor already of his countless mercies. And because of that, you are able to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. You're, you're, you are able to live for God in a pleasing way. Do you know that God can be pleased by us? Can you, that's just an astounding thought. In light of our finitude, that we're finite beings, and also we're sinfully pathetic. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we can please God. We can't believe by the things we do, legitimately. And here's one of those places where Paul says it. You can. When you live obediently, according to God's word and his power, you can actually please the Father. Like I said, that is astounding. And here's how you do it. Uh, God wants you to expect you to live a pleasing life, that your very life is a spiritual sacrifice of worship to him. Everything you do is an act of worship to God. How do we do that, Paul? Well, verse 2. Well, number one, there's the negative and the positive. First, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like this world. Don't be squeezed in the mold of this world. Oh, that's hard to do, isn't it? We are in this world. It's all over. The it's in our face. What a challenge. Don't be squeezed into the mold after the pattern of this fallen, corrupt, wicked world by which you are surrounded. It's like telling a fish that lives in the fishbowl, don't get wet by this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So don't be uh, transformed or influenced from the outside, but rather be transformed from the inside, where God started his salvation with you. He saved your soul. So don't be 
put in the mold of this world, but rather instead in contrast to that, be transformed, put yourself in a position of being transformed by God's spirit. How do we do that? How do we put ourselves in a position to be transformed by God in spiritual ways? It says by the renewing of your mind, by the renewing of your mind. Here's the key to transformation. It's your mind. It's how you think. It's your thought life. You got to get that under control. That's biblical counseling right there. That was in my definition. I sit down with somebody, Pastor Cliff, I have a problem. Can you help me? And the first thing I'm thinking is, okay, I want to know what the issue is, but then I want to know what they think about that issue. And then I ask about a thousand questions to see what they think about that issue. And then in light of their questions, I ask ten more questions because I'm trying to assess their thinking. I want to know what you think because it's all about the thinking. We need to transform, renew our mind. I just want you to see in this passage that is talking about biblical counseling uh, Paul's references to the priority of the mind and how we think in verse 2, then in verse 3, how we think two times. Our judgment, that's thinking. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may, as a result, will prove what the will of God is. You prove what God wants by how you think. If you think wrong, you're undermining what God wants. If you think right, you're proving what God wants. The will, what's the will of God? It's what God wants. What does God want? It's right here in the Bible. He told you. Here's what I want. Here are my thoughts. Here's my will. Do this. Don't do that. And you want to be in sync with what God, God's will is. And the only way we can assess that is figure out what you think. And we're, com we're comparing that with God's thoughts. So that you approve the will of God, what God's think, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Did you know you can think perfectly if you are in sync with God's thoughts? God always thinks good, God always thinks acceptably, and God always thinks perfectly, and our job as Christians is to do the same. We don't do it continually, but there are moments where we can actually do it because we're thinking God's thoughts with the power of the Holy Spirit. We're thinking His truth. It's possible. For through the grace given to me as an apostle, I say to every Christian, every one of you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't overassess yourself. Have a sober evaluation of yourself. What kind of light bulb has God made you when he saved you? Did he make you a 45-watt light bulb? Did he make you a 65-watt light bulb? Are you a 75-watt light bulb? Maybe you're a 90-watt light bulb that has those three different settings on it. Whoa. You know, God does that. He makes every Christian different. And if I am a 45-watt light bulb, and that's what God made me, I can't go around thinking, well, I'm 75 watts. No, you're not. You are arrogant. That's what Paul's saying. You don't have sober judgment about how God has gifted you. That's what he's getting at here. You want to live right in the world, then to live right and think right, you have a, it starts with yourself and what you think about yourself. Don't over-assess about yourself, and then he's going to compliment that by saying don't underestimate what God has done and the grace he's given you in your life because he's given you a spiritual gift. So, for through the grace of God given to me, I say to every Christian not to think more high, don't overthink how great you are, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think rather so as to have sound judgment, sober judgment, level-headed judgment, self-controlled thoughts about yourself, modest judgment, chaste judgment. I'm giving you all these synonyms for this one Greek word, for have sound judgment about yourself. It's one Greek word. Sophron. Frame is the root word. Frame. From fram, from diaphragm. That's where the word, diaphragm, what's the diaphragm? It's the uh, from their perspective, it was what was on the inside that controls and regulates what goes on in the outside. It's inner control, inner regulation. So outer regulation and controlling your external world starts by you controlling what's on the inside of how you think. Again, this is your thought life. It's what you think. It's not passive listening. Oh, I don't want to offend you. Oh, I don't want to challenge your thinking. Oh, I don't want to correct you. Oh, I don't want to hurt your feelings. It's all about your mind. Have sound judgment. Think properly about yourself. Well, how, Paul? Well, as God has allotted to each one of you a measure of faith. God has given every single Christian a measurement of faith relative to what kind of light bulb they are. Measure of faith literally is a, a metron of faith, a unit of faith. It's how God has wired you as a Christian from the time that he has saved you. You are distinct and unique from every other Christian. But it's very specific and definitive of how God, the metron he gave you, the measurement of faith that he's allocated to you, your care as a steward and everything about you, your constitution spiritually, your capacity spiritually, your giftedness, 
your ability to do ministry and how effective you are, the areas in which you should serve. That's what he's talking about. This is all in the context of being used by God with your spiritual gifts of how you should be serving in this world and in the church. It's very specialized. It's very personal, a measure of faith. So function in light of the measure of faith that God has given to you. You're different from everybody else. And then he balances that with verse 4 and 5 where he says, we're all apart. There's great diversity in the body and you're one of many. Um, but we need you. You're unique. There's diversity. We need every believer. And then verse 5 is, and even though there's uniqueness and differentiation and uh, differences, there is unity in the body. So we're all one. So don't forget that. It's not all about you. So they go together. So unity and diversity, beautiful complement. That's the body of Christ. And God wants to use us all accordingly. And so then he gets to the point of verse 6. Here's the point. Verse uh, 6 says, Since we, all of us Christians, have gifts. All of us have Every Christian has a spiritual gift. Every one of us. You might even have more than one or a combination of several. Pastor, I don't feel like I have a spiritual gift. I've heard that before. Well, if they're a Christian, what do we need to address? They're thinking, right? And that's the whole point. So we go to Scripture and we show them because they're a child of God, the Spirit of God is going to allow them to understand this and see this. Oh, wow, wow, really? So I have the Spirit of God living in me. He's the greatest gift of all. Oh, thank you for that reminder. And then there are specific gifts He's empowered me to do and He's given me faith and grace to carry that out and He wants to use me in a mighty way to edify the whole body of Christ and that I am important to God and the rest of the body. Thank you, Pastor, for showing me that. It's right here. This is all about addressing their thinking, showing them who they are in Christ, their identity in Christ. This is biblical counseling. We're addressing their thinking. And I'm, I'm not making fun of the Christian who says, I don't feel like I have a spiritual gift, because I was there. I did that. I remember when I was a new Christian, I didn't realize I had a spiritual gift, and people were telling, yeah, you got to get I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. And somebody had to tell me this. And then I took in that biblical truth. It changed my thinking, changed the way I live. So since we all have gifts, every single one of us, and we, the gifts differ according to the grace given to us, so God graciously gives you a very unique spiritual gift amount and how to use it. And then he goes on in verses 6 through 8 to tell you, if you have this gift, you need to use it faithfully. Be about using your gift. It's a command. It's an imperative. If you have the gift of prophecy, then use the gift of prophecy according to the analogy of faith. That's the end of verse 6. If you have the gift of prophecy, then the parameters are do it in keeping with the analogy of the faith. What does that mean? It means in keeping with what God's already laid down in Scripture. Don't be given new prophecy stuff that conflicts with the Bible. Very simple. That's if you have the gift of prophecy. Um, then if you have the gift of service, then you need to be serving. These are all imperatival. They're commands. If you have, God's given you the gift of service, you should be serving. Well, I, I've been away from the church for six months or a year because of COVID. Well, who are you serving? It's a good question, isn't it? You're accountable for that gift? You happen to have that gift of serving that could be blessing others. Who's being neglected because you haven't been serving them while you've been gone? Or just in general. People not going to church is not a new problem in light of COVID. That was going on from the very beginning. That's why the Hebrews author had to say that in chapter 10. You know, there are a lot of Christians out there who've gotten the habit of ditching church and not coming to be with the body. And there's a lot of damage being done. There's a lot of neglect being done. There's a lot of gifts that aren't being used to build up the body. Come on. And he uses the word exhortation. Let's, let's get back to church. Get back with the body. That's serving. You can't serve unless you have people around you. It's inherent in the gift. So if you have the gift of service, you need to be serving. If you have the gift of teaching, then you need to be teaching. And by the way, if, you, if you're teaching, you better have the gift of teaching. That's also his point here. That's why he said, don't overestimate your abilities. If you're not gifted at teaching, then you should minimize your teaching opportunities. So if you're gifted at teaching, you need to be teaching. Ongoing, present tense. This needs to be a regular pattern of behavior. It's a stewardship that God has given to you. He will require it of you. What kind of steward were you? Here's your rewards. Here's your loss of rewards. He's looking for faithfulness. And then verse 8, this gift. If you have the gift of exhortation, then you should be exhorting. Use that gift. So this is my first definition. This is a, a key word regarding biblical counseling. That's what this word is. That's what this gift is. There, did you know there's a spiritual gift of biblical counseling? And it's right here. New American Standard says it calls it exhortation. Sometimes it's translated many different ways in the New Testament. Exhortation. It's a, it's a beautiful word. It's a compound word. It's a very specific word. Para, 
as in parallel lines alongside each other. Para. That's what para means. Para church, a ministry that's alongside closely to help the church, to assist, to aid. Para. Para church, parallel. This is para kaleo. So it's alongside of, close beside, kaleo, to call. To call along, to call, hey you! To call. It's a verbal act, call. Deliberate act. And then when you put them together, it's to come alongside somebody. Kind of the imagery is like shoulder to shoulder, a mouth to the ear, or a face to face, I'm holding your shoulders, or I'm turning around, whispering in your ear with a pat on the back. Coming alongside, talking to someone, coming alongside in close proximity at a very personal, intimate level. That's what this word is. And verbally speaking truth into their mind. This is a specialized ministry. This is in contrast to other common New Testament words, and there are many of teaching, of the teaching ministry, like Keruso, which is proclamation. That's just standing up and, hear ye, hear ye. You can give a message and you issue it to a thousand people, and it's one direction. That's a common word for preaching. Hamalageo, another preaching word. I'm just, I'm, pre- I'm spewing forth truth to the people, to the listeners. It's one-way action. It can be from a distance. Amalageo, Keruso, Un, Galizzo, all these preaching words. They're one way. Many times they're to huge, massive crowds. In contrast to that is parakaleo, coming alongside, finding somebody out, zooming in on them because they have a unique problem. And they have a problem they can't solve themselves. And they know that and they either come to you, whoever you are, fellow Christian, or you know that and you go to them. Hey, you have a problem. Or they might come and say, you know, I have a problem. I need help. I need counsel. Parakaleo. Parakaleo. When you have a problem, you pro- as a Christian, you probably think very carefully and even pray about who you're going to go talk to when you need counsel, don't you? Especially depending upon how sensitive the issue is. You've got to be really careful, very prayerful. There's a lot of trust there. And if you're a Christian, you want somebody that you can trust Somebody that you know unconditionally loves you in Jesus Christ. That's your foundation. You can tell them anything. You're going to trust their wise counsel. You know they're going to be prayerful. And so you go to them. That's this idea. So that's biblical. what is biblical counseling? Parakaleo. It's going up close beside, coming up alongside somebody who has a problem. They need help solving their problem. And you're the person or one of many persons who can help them. The book of Proverbs reminds us that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, right? That hopefully they're all, they're all in sync. Their foundation is the Word of God. And then there's this beautiful uh, common ground that they have with the united front and this resonance that you know, oh man, that comes from the Spirit of God. That is truth. And I had four people tell me the same thing. And I didn't know that and I thought just the opposite. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to me through your people, through your word, to help me solve that problem. This is biblical counseling. So biblical counseling is a unique gift. We need it in the church because how many of us need... Raise your hand. Well, you don't need to raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. Uh, Those of us who need... I need counsel all the time. Let me tell you a secret. Don't tell anybody. Here's a, a, a secret. I need counsel at least once a week and actually every day. I need, and i got all kinds of counselors. My counselors are the Christian church. My counselors are the Christian community. My counselor are fellow believers. The body of Christ. That's God's intent too, by the way. That's the one another's. Do you know that there are over 30, almost 40 different one another's in the church? One another's. It's this mutual ongoing ministry on a regular basis with one another. And counseling is a huge part of that. If you're a Christian, you're in the church, and you're missing out on the one another's on a regular basis. Man, you're missing out big time on wise counsel, on healthy spiritual life. You might just be left to be wallowing in your problems when there's a solution to your problems. And it might be the counsel of the saints or a select few. By the way, going back to this word, parakaleo, we should all be counseling uh, at some level as Christians, encouraging one another verbally with God's truth, addressing the mind when people have problems. But God has also gifted the church with specialized people who have this unique ability or unique gift in counseling and helping others. This is a supernatural gift. This is rare. 
There are some really smart people who know the Bible really well and some great preachers that are lousy counselors. They are. They're either not good listeners or they don't know how to diagnose and assess or uh, they don't know how to apply the Scripture to that person's problem. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It's like maybe you've got a really uh, godly, holy person and uh, they've just been blessed by God and they've lived a life that's very constant and faithful and sober-minded and level-headed and uh, they're obedient and they're disciplined and they walk in the Spirit on a routine basis. And God has graced them to do that and they don't have this horrific stuff in their past with these... Uh, deep-seated patterns of sin and things they've been exposed to when they were 11 years old. And you look at their life and it's like, wow, they're, you know, they're just even kill and then they listen to your gory problem. And they can't even relate. <laughs> You're a crit? Really? Wow. Just read the Bible. Just do what it says. I say, no, well, go talk to somebody else uh, who has this gift who is just a gifted listener. And what they can do, they're gifted here at Parakaleo. They're gifted at uh, coming along with somebody. They're gifted at talking to them. They're, they're gifted at being a great listener. Uh, the details of the story, they're gifted at understanding God's Word. They are mature. They are wise. They're led by the Spirit. They are careful. They're prayerful. They're detailed. They love people. They have great optimism and faith because they believe that God can change people through His truth. They believe that. They act on that. And then they're great at diagnosing the problem and breaking it down. Very complex, complicated problems. Sometimes it takes a long time. So they're very patient. They'll meet with people for hours and weeks, walking them through the problem, diagnosing properly the problem, and then matching it with the solution in Scripture. And it's just a beautiful, harmonious comp. That is a gift. That is a rare gift. There's a, a lot of people out there trying to Oh, yeah, diagnose. Oh, I got your problem. That's the worst thing that can happen is you make a diagnosis to somebody and then you give them a solution you think is here's the biblical solution. It was actually you gave them the wrong solution because you didn't diagnose the, the problem properly. That happens all the time. And then people get disillusioned by the church or pastors or Christians. Well, why is that? Well, 30 years ago, this guy, this Christian, this leader, he gave me some really horrible, stupid, destructive advice. And then I listened. I was like, yeah, that was, that was pretty bad. I'm sorry about that. Then I think, ooh, I've probably done the same thing. Yikes. <laughs> Pastor Derek said that about himself when he was going through Ephesians 4. So you've got to be careful. But anyway, this person is gifted. So we want these people in our church. We want to provide opportunities for these people who are gifted at counseling. Coming alongside, and usually it's, it's a verbal gift. It is deliberate. Parakaleo, last thing about parakaleo it is translated in three primary words in your New Testament. I mean, there's actually 20 different English words that translate it, but the emphasis is in three different ways. When you're counseling somebody privately and you listen to their problem, you diagnose it, and then you look for the scriptural solution, it's usually one of three manifestations that their problem needs attention. It's usually encouragement or comfort. You, this person needs some com They need some strengthening. So that, you know, they're depressed. They lost somebody. Or you listen to it so it's comfort or it could be exhortation. You're urging them on. You know what, man? You need to just, like a coach, go in there and, and do it. Score a touchdown. Go get them. They just need somebody to motivate them. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know the right thing to do. And, man, I'm just, and they're hesitant. They need some support. Well, no, man, I'll be with you. I'll take, go do it. You don't make the decision for them. That's not biblical counseling, by the way. You have to make your own decision. Pastor, uh, should I do this? Should I write this letter to my, my mean mother-in-law? Uh, I'm not answering that question. That's your mother-in-law. I'll give you biblical principles by which to guide your thinking. I will pray for you. I'm not telling you whether you should write the letter or not. Pastor, should I take communion or not? I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. That's your decision. So don't get confused there. Biblical counselor doesn't make the decision for you. You have to make your own decision. This is between you and God. The counselor is just trying to help diagnose the problem and give the biblical solution and helping you along to make the right decision. So you've got uh, encouraging or comfort, and then you've got uh, exhortation or cheer them on, go get it, and then there's the negative one, that's rebuke. You know, wow, this is terrible. You're doing that? That's horrible. Stop doing that. And here's what the Bible says. You're, you're sinning. Do you understand that? Do you believe the Bible? Yes. And you're doing this? Yes. And do you realize that's sin according to the Bible? Yes. And what should you do? I should probably stop doing it. No, you should stop doing it. That's sin. God won't bless that. 
You will sow what you reap. Stop doing that. We all need to hear that, don't we? That's one of the biggest blessings of marriage. Christian marriage, right? As iron sharpens iron, so one spouse sharpens another. That should be happening every day in a gracious way, right? Gift from God. Okay, so that's parakaleo, that's Romans 12. Now let's go to the other one. Beautiful compliment of what is biblical counseling, and that would be uh, chapter 15, verse 14 in Romans. And we'll just cut to the chase on this one because we've said a lot of things to lay the groundwork here in terms of the emphasis. So there are specialized counselors in the church, yet everybody should be involved in counseling. We're going to see that right here. This is a beautiful compliment. So you got the micro and the macro level. Every Christian is a counselor, but there are specialized Christian counselors. Chapter 15, verse 14. Paul concludes this letter talking to Roman Christians and concerning you, my brethren, fellow believers, I myself as an apostle, also I am convinced, because God has revealed this to him, that you yourselves, every one of you, is full of goodness. Are you good? Well, you, you can say legitimately as a Christian, yes and no. There's nothing good in me in and of myself, but Jesus lives in me. And whatever is good in me is a manifestation of Jesus. So yes, you are good as a Christian because you've been forgiven by God and the Spirit of God lives in you. That's why Paul says in Galatians, uh, I live, yet not I live, but Christ lives in me. What's that? Well, there's an old, ugly, dirty, sinful self that lives in me that's the I, this is me. And then Jesus also is my new identity lives in me as well, and he is perfect. So a Christian can be good, but it's only through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ who lives in you through the Spirit. That's why he says you are full of good if you're truly born again. If you're not born again, you aren't good. You're evil to the core. You're a child of Satan. Sorry, but that's what the Bible says. You have good intentions maybe because you're made in God's image. Yeah, that's true. That's common grace. But that's not what he's talking about. As a believer, you're full of goodness. So in other words, you are, and you're filled with all knowledge. In other words, uh, you've got the Spirit of God living in you. So all knowledge is at your disposal immediately through the Spirit of God who lives in you and the Word of God. So you have access to it. The sufficiency of Scripture is right here. The sufficiency of God's truth. We have everything God wants us to know. We don't have everything we can know, but we have everything we need to know. We have everything that God wants us to know. That's the sufficiency of truth. That's why Paul can say, well, if you're a Christian, you are filled with all knowledge and all goodness because the Spirit of God lives in you. In other words, he's laying the foundation saying, you know what, if you want to be a counselor, you have to have, there are prerequisites. You have to be equipped. Well, you are equipped. The resources God has given you are sufficient. You're full of goodness, so you have the right motive, you have the right intent, you love people, filled with wisdom. That's divine, supernatural truth that comes from God and God alone that is in the Word. And you are able, that word market, that's power. You have resident power. Well, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. I can't talk to my spouse and say that. Yeah, you can. Are you a Christian? Yes. Okay, then yeah, you can. It's right there. Able, dunamis, power. Spirit of God, the power of the Word. You are able. God has made you able. You need to own that. You need to realize that. You need to appropriate that. You have what it takes. I know it's scary to talk to your coworker. I know it's a sensitive issue to talk to your mother-in-law, your older daughter. But you are able if you're a Christian. You can't control how they respond. But you are able because God has equipped you. You are able to, and here's the key word, admonish. There it is. That is the biblical word for biblical counseling, admonish. And it's another compound Greek word. Some of you have heard of nuthetic counseling. Some of you haven't. But anyway, those of you who have, nuthetic counseling, is just that means biblical counseling. Thank you, Jay Adams, who's in heaven now. Nuthetic counseling. It's a compound Greek word right there. Nous, that's the mind, the mind. Nous plus a verb. I'll just say theo for short. Theo. Nu, theo. What does that mean? To place, to put, to deliberately place. Shove it in there. Really? So what does this mean? Admonish. To place into the mind. That's biblical counseling. That's what I do. I sit down, Pastor, can you uh, solve my problem? Probably not, but let's see what God has to say about it in his word. But let's talk about what is your problem. And then the thousand questions, and I'm taking notes, and I'm listening, writing it all down, thinking through, praying through. 
Then we get to, and then we go and assess, okay, God, do you have anything to say about this? And absolutely he does, because Scripture is sufficient. There's nothing new under the sun. And then I come up with the biblical answer, and then I do this, admonish that person. Admonish is not strictly just a negative word. So get that out of your mind. This doesn't just mean you're shaking your finger at this person. It's translated in the New Testament uh, ten different ways. It can mean just teach. Some, it's translated as teach one, one way. Instruct, teach, correct. It does have the negative component. Reprove, admonish, warn, warn. Counsel. Pastor Cliff, if you keep eating those McDonald burgers, then your arteries are going to get corroded. I've been told that by the doctor. Okay, thank you. That was a warning. That was scary. I love those burgers. But anyway, warn, counsel, exhort. This is the word for admonish. And it is literally to place into the mind. What are we placing in the mind? We are placing God's truth in their mind. That's what you're doing in biblical counseling. So that's why you put a priority on a person who has a problem. You want to know what they think. I need to know what you think so that then I can transfer God's truth and place that in your mind very proactively. And the person that's sitting there listening, they, bet they have to have a heart that's submissive to Scripture. I can't tell you how many times. You've probably experienced this too. Talking to a Christian, they're seeking counsel. You tell them what the Bible says and they don't like it. Huh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go find another counselor, like a pinball. And I'm just going to keep bouncing around until I find somebody that agrees with what I say. No, we're trying to put God's truth in their mind, replace wrong thinking. Replace wrong thinking. Replace our thoughts with God's thoughts. Here's, here's the purview of biblical counseling, just so you know. When I say that the Bible is sufficient, Jesus is sufficient, the Spirit is sufficient, God's truth is sufficient, prayer is sufficient, all this sufficiency, uh, it's not sufficient for some things in life, like if your car uh, breaks down and you, uh, your alternator goes out. Don't call the pastor. At least don't call me, because you'll be disappointed. That's not what I mean by sufficiency. You, your alternator breaks down, you call uh, the mechanic. You have a fever then you take your temperature, and if you need to go see a medical doctor, go see a medical doctor. If you have strep throat, then you go get penicillin. Your dog has an owie, go to the vet. So we know this. But here's the purview of biblical counseling. Here are the problems we do deal with. And if you're trying to get counsel or advice from somebody else who's not a Christian using biblical counsel for the following things, then you're barking up the wrong tree. You're going to be disappointed. God can't help you. Here are the Here's the areas of biblical counseling, the purview. Actions and behavior. The Bible is sufficient to deal with every conceivable action. I didn't think about that. I'll let you meditate on that this week, of all that that covers. The Bible is sufficient to deal with all kinds of every conceivable human action. and It has something to say about every single human action or behavior. What else? Relations. Relationships with people. Relations. A lot of counseling that I get is problems with, well, I can't get along with uh, my, one of my relatives. Does the Bible have anything to say about it? It has a lot to say about it. So behavior, relations, uh, your words and speech, the Bible has, is comprehensive on that and can address your words and speech. Your emotions, the Bible has everything to say that you need to know about your emotions. We're all emotional people. Uh, thinking, your thought life. The Bible is the ultimate guide source and authoritative standard by what we should think, how we should think, and the results and consequences of how we think and why our thinking should change. In other words, all your spiritual problems follow, fall under the umbrella, the purview of biblical counseling. That is the domain. God has an answer. God has a solution. God has resources. If you're a Christian, there is sufficiency there for any conceivable legitimate problem that falls under the purview of a spiritual problem. What are the resources we have? Well, according to Scripture, you have sufficiency in Jesus Christ who's forgiven you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. I could stop there. That's sufficient alone. But we also have the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So you have sufficient power to overcome your alcoholism, your depression, your whatever it is, your anxiety. It's in you. We have the sufficiency of prayer, James chapter 5. If we just do it, Oh, I have this problem. I have this uh, issue I'm dealing with. Well, have you prayed about it? I did this last week with somebody. Have you prayed about that? Well, not really, sort of. Well, specifically like this? No, I haven't. How long has this been going on? A while. Oh, wow. Let's start there. 
The sufficiency of prayer, that's part of counseling. I'm telling them, I'm not solving their problem, I'm telling them to go to God and how they can get their healed. So the sufficiency of prayer, the sufficiency of the Bible, that's objective truth, it's right here. You have it all. Sometimes we need help from others to figure it out because we are ignorant, right? We're finite. I need help. But the, uh, the Bible's sufficient for objective truth. Get this one. The body of Christ is sufficient for all of your human relationships. As a social being made in the image of God, all of your social requirements, needs, and desires can sufficiently be met in the body of Christ, the church. Did you know that? You don't need a country club. You can have one, but you don't need one. Or this club and that club and the PTA and the Christian school and this sorority group and that fraternity and blah, blah, blah and all your social relationships. Those, those are extra. Some of them are superfluous. God's intention is you find complete sufficiency in the body of Jesus Christ for all of your social needs. Pastor, I feel alone. I feel lonely then you've got to get plugged in the body and see the light of where you're missing it. This is God's intent. We're all social beings. He knows that. Even single people, your sufficiency is in the body of Christ. And then finally, we, we have sufficiency in our Father. God our Father, His love, His care, His protection, His provision, and all these other gifts that He gives us. Complete sufficiency in Him. All right, well, I got about one-fourth of what I wanted to get through this morning, but that's okay, uh, and I'm even gone over. So just to give you a lot to think about, hopefully it was practical and helpful. Two great verses to meditate on. And, yeah, we should be clapping for Jesus. He is our Lord and Savior. Clapping for the Father, the sufficiency of His Word and His grace. And if you know somebody who's not a believer and they have problems, don't just blow them off. You can give them the good news and tell them how they can have their problems met by the creator of the universe, and it starts with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. With that, let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we do thank you for our time together, time to worship with the saints, uh, the body of Christ that you have blessed us with, these wonderful truths from your word, glorious reminders of all that you have given to us as your children, your love for us, uh, the blessed Savior, Jesus, who died for us, who reigns on high, who lives in our heart. God, thank you for that. Remind us of that great truth over and over again so that we're filled with joy and not controlled by anxiety and fear. That is not of you. That is not your will. Remind us, Lord, we also need to be down on our knees in regular communion with you. We give you all the glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.